Our scripture today is Jude 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. How you guys doing? It's good to be with you guys. That is my daughter, Isley. We've uh, had the joy of having a daddy-daughter weekend and uh, driving here to be with you guys from Oklahoma City. Greetings from Frontline Church. Uh, we love you guys. I got multiple texts this morning of folks uh, praying for you, praying for our time together this morning. And um, it just always makes me really happy to, to come and be with you all. Uh, I've known Tim and Patty for many, many years uh, when we've been serving in all kinds of different ministries, all kinds of different places, but we always find our way back to reconnecting with each other. And uh, another thing that's special for me about driving here to Iowa is I have three generations of my family buried here. So my great-grandfather and great-grandmother are buried here, and my grandfather and grandmother, and my father that I buried two years ago here in Des Moines. So coming back with Isley and getting to drive around town and show her 7122 Del Metro and, and uh, the other places where uh, I grew up and fished with my grandpa and my great-grandpa. Another story that came to my mind was my great-grandfather, C.W., pulling over into the side of the road and walking out into the corn to pluck an ear while it was really fresh and, and making me take a bite off the cob. And I thought, you know, maybe I should share that story. Maybe I shouldn't. Maybe that's like a faux pas. Maybe you're not supposed to do that. Maybe the farmer would have been really ticked off if he saw my grandpa do that. I don't know. Is that, is that considered a faux pas to do that, or do farmers not care? Does anyone know? It's a, okay, good. I was like, you're going to tell that story, and people are going to be like, what a jerk. Who would do that? All our hard work, stealing corn. Um, so I love, I love this state. I love this church. Um, it's a joy to be with you guys. Let me pray for us, and we'll jump right in. Lord, thank you for the words of encouragement in this text. Lord, thank you that you come close to us and you say things we didn't even know we needed to hear. And then our shoulders drop and we take a deep breath and we realize how badly we needed to hear from you. Lord, I pray for everyone in this room, people who walked in feeling weary today, people who walked in feeling discouraged, overwhelmed, or people who walked in feeling a sense of shame, people who walked in and told themselves, I don't belong. No one sees me. Lord, I pray that today as we open your word that they would feel seen by you, that they would hear something that sounds like good news coming from your lips. Help us, Lord. Open our eyes, as the psalmist prayed, to see wonderful things in your word. For Jesus' sake, amen. For those of you who may not have seen at the show The Good Place, an NBC sitcom wrapped up back in 2020, and the reason why I want to mention it to you is an article in The Atlantic a couple years ago pointed out that the show disguises itself at first glance as one thing, a show about a woman who accidentally gets into heaven and is desperately trying to play it off like she belongs there, before revealing that it's actually about something else, 
a really clever discussion about the meaning of life. And without giving too much away, if you haven't seen it, the characters are desperately trying to get into the good place, or what is conceived of as heaven in the show. And they live in constant fear that they're going to fail to get there. And they make lots of sacrifices along the way in their attempt to get there. But when they finally get to the good place, and they think they've made it, that they've arrived, they're disappointed to find out that in this show's version of heaven, gaining the power to do whatever they can imagine without any hardship, just slowly starts to turn their brains into mush. They get bored, and it eventually makes them want to lay down the burden of existence at all. To only slightly spoil the show, finally their solution to the boredom of this heaven and the burden of eternal existence is to create an exit, a door that they can walk through whenever they want, when they're finally weary and they haven't found anything else to hold their interest in life so that they can be finally annihilated. Now, whether you're here today and you're a Christian, or whether you're here today and you're still exploring the claims of Jesus, if you're honest, you probably found yourself wondering from time to time if heaven is going to be boring. And if you're honest, sometimes you get scared. If you're anything like me, you get scared. Scared that you might not actually even make it there in the first place. Scared that even if you do make it, after making lots of sacrifices along the way, you might find it unfulfilling. Maybe even, dare we say it, boring. What if the good place turns out to not be that great? Well, the good news is that here in this passage, Jude, Jesus' biological half-brother, who the Gospels tell us for most of Jesus' ministry, didn't even buy Jesus' claims about himself, but who after the resurrection saw who Jesus truly was, became a pillar of the Jerusalem church, and who, in writing this tiny little letter that's easy to miss in the New Testament, is so humble that he doesn't even rep Jesus. <laughs> he just says, hey, this letter is coming to you from Jude. Some of you may know me. I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. I'm the brother of James. <laughs> and he just passes right over his relationship biologically to Jesus. But in this letter, we're going to see Jude here at the close, these last two verses this benediction or blessing, this doxology, these words of praise to God, speaking to those fears. Jude's going to give us two reasons we're going to see why we don't have to be afraid. What Jude's essentially saying in these verses is, you don't have to be afraid. God is in the business of vigilantly preserving all of his people. So one, no Christian's going to fail to finish. And two, no Christian's going to feel unfulfilled when they get there. So let's consider the first reason here in our text that Jude says we don't have to be afraid in verse 24. Don't be afraid, Jude says. God's preserving his people, so we're not going to fail to finish. No Christian is going to fail to finish. But we're not going to be able to draw comfort from Jude's words if we're confused about what finishing means and what finishing doesn't mean. Let me say a couple things about what finishing means and doesn't mean. First, finishing means and doesn't mean that God preserves us for our progress, not our pace. God preserves us for our progress, but not our pace. Progress over pace. To be moved from spiritual death to spiritual life, 
is something God does totally apart from us earning it or deserving it. He does it through and because of Jesus. And it leads to people becoming what Jude says in verse 1, are those who are called and kept for Jesus Christ. And now Jude's saying, for those people, verse 1, who are called and kept by Jesus, when we're brought to life by God, he's not only able to keep us for Jesus, but also, verse 24, he's able to keep us from stumbling. God's able to keep us from stumbling. He's able. If you belong to Jesus, God's able to keep you from falling away. We've got to understand what this promise means and doesn't mean so that we don't think that God's forgotten us when it gets hard, so that we don't think that God's forgotten us when we face setbacks. John Calvin, many, many, many years ago, famously described God's preservation. And he said, this process of being kept from stumbling, it's actually a lot less glamorous than you might think, a lot less smooth than you might think. Listen to what Calvin says, and he was writing hundreds of years ago, so bear with his tortured language. He says, nobody in this earthly prison of the body has sufficient strength to press on with due eagerness. And weakness so weighs down the greater number that with wavering and limping and even creeping along the ground, they move at a feeble rate. But nobody shall set out so inauspiciously as not daily to make some headway, though it be slight. Calvin's saying, hey, in this journey to heaven, sometimes you run, sometimes you walk, other times you limp, sometimes you're even reduced to creeping along the ground. You're crawling. It doesn't feel very impressive. It doesn't feel like what you imagined when you became a Christian. But Calvin says the good news is it all counts as progress if you're facing the right direction. Progress over pace. In the words of historian Claire Davis trying to unpack this bizarre tension, he comes up with a funny picture. He said, each of you should think of yourselves like a yo-yo held in the hand of a man going upstairs. Well, that's bizarre, but stay with me. You're a yo-yo held in the hands of of a man going upstairs. You're a yo-yo. You experience spiritual ups and downs, highs and lows, seasons where you feel close to God and seasons where you don't. You fall into sin and it makes you miserable. And then God's spirit works in your heart to cause you to repent and return. You return to the hand of the man. And that's a reality that everybody in this room has experienced if you're following Jesus. But there's this parallel truth happening at the same time that's often invisible to us, and that's that the man is going upstairs, right in the midst of the ups and the downs, the highs and the lows, the ways in which we all feel spiritually schizophrenic, we're held in the hand of a man who's steadily bringing us to the finish line, keeping us from stumbling. The spiritual ups and downs that you all experience aren't the whole story. Yeah, you're a yo-yo, just like me, but you're held in the hand of a man going upstairs. Progress over pace. Direction over speed. Even in the midst of your ups and downs, Jude's saying, God's at work. He's at work to keep you, verse 24, so that he might one day present you blameless 
before the presence of his glory, and you'll be filled, Jude says, verse 24, with great joy. I don't want to hurry past this, so take a minute and think about this. If this is true, maybe you've got an idea, maybe you carried into the room today an idea of where you'd like to be spiritually, maybe even where you think you ought to be spiritually, and you're not there yet. Maybe that's driving you crazy. Maybe you feel disappointed in yourself or assume God's disappointed in you or assume this faith community is disappointed with you, impatient with you. Consider this question. Who told you you were behind? Who told you you were behind? How might you carry yourself differently if you didn't always feel like you were spiritually late to class or late to work? What would feel different if you realized that truth? Ask yourself that question. Who told you you were behind? God's preserving his people so our shoulders can drop, we can take a breath. We're not going to fail to finish if we're in Jesus, but it's easy to get confused about what finishing means and doesn't mean. So another thing the finishing means and doesn't mean is this. God preserves us for his presence, but not a pass on suffering. God preserves us for his presence, but it's not a pass on suffering. God's never promised an easy path back to his presence, but he does promise us that we'll find satisfaction and joy when we get there. And the funny thing is that sometimes easy is exactly what won't get us there. He preserves us for his presence, not a pass on suffering. And in order to really appreciate this ending to our story that that Jude is lifting the veil and letting us peek at and is describing for us and enticing us with so that we won't grow weary, in order to really appreciate this ending of the story that he's describing, we got to remember how our story started. Our journey is actually a journey back into the presence of God because our journey began, Genesis tells us, with being sent away from the presence of God. Everything sad in our lives is ultimately even several steps removed, is ultimately a byproduct of our first parents being sent away from God's presence. This is why the psalmist in Psalm 1611 can say to God, hey, you make known to me the path of life. Notice life is a path, a path back to the presence of God. But why, the psalmist says, because in your presence, there's fullness of joy. At your right hand, that's where infinite pleasure is going to be found. Our story started out really sad. Our first parents had everything they needed, but they were seduced by this lie that God was holding out. They rejected the safety and the beauty of his authority, and they feasted on what he'd forbidden them, that he forbid out of his love and his wisdom. And as a result, it brought death and darkness into the good world that God made, and we've all been living with the fallout of that ever since. Genesis 3 tells us that Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden after they did that, in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife, Genesis 3 says, 
hid themselves, notice, from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Notice our first reaction was to hide from his presence. All of us have been hiding ever since. We became, in the words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2, separated from the presence of Christ, having no hope, and without God in the world. This is our fate apart from Jesus. And so God sends his son for a people that pushed him away and then hid from him in shame. He's moved towards us in the person of his own son. He's offered us a taste of his presence in a form that our frailty and our darkness could handle. This person, the only one pure enough to enter God's white, hot, holy presence is a blameless sacrifice. And yet at the same time, fully human, just like you and me. He got tired, hungry, lonely. He suffered pain. All of this so he could be accepted as our substitute. A sacrifice to be consumed in our place. Notice, Jude says, verse 24, God's able to keep you from stumbling and he's doing it for a reason. It's precisely for the purpose of presenting you blameless before the presence of of his glory with great joy. Why does he work so hard to preserve his people? What's the point? His preservation, Jude's saying, is for his presence. It's so that we might be with him. What's finally going to bring us joy isn't primarily going to be the absence of the suffering in our life that we wish so badly would lift. It's going to be the presence of God. A friend of mine once wrote a song that goes, like this. You're more concerned with keeping me than exalting me. God, you're more concerned with keeping me than exalting me. So take a minute and think about that. If God's more concerned with keeping you than exalting you, if he knows that what you need is not so much the absence of suffering, but the presence of him and his love, What would that change about how you think about painful places in your life? Maybe there's a place in your life where you've quietly resigned yourself to the lie that God doesn't really care about you. You've asked him and asked him, and he hasn't answered in the way you wanted, in the time you wanted, and so you've silently started to conclude that he's indifferent. Maybe there's a place in your life where you've been trying so hard to be good and it just doesn't feel like God's keeping up his end of the bargain. You put your money in the celestial Coke machine and you've been banging on it and nothing's coming out. God took your dollar. You feel like he owes you. And if you're really honest, you know the Sunday school answer says you're not allowed to admit this, but if you're really honest kind of mad at him. What might start to melt in your heart if you believe that what you needed was not so much the absence of suffering, but the presence of God? Now, before we go any further, we have to address a very real tension in our text that some of you have probably been picking up on. Here in our verses, it's such a beautiful passage to unfold together because 
Jude's here to offer us comfort in these verses. <laughs> hey, God's able to keep his people from stumbling. He's able to keep you from falling away from the faith and failing to die a Christian. Take heart. Good news. But if you let your eye bounce up the page just a little bit, just a few sentences prior in verse 21, Jude also offers them a caution. Hey, beloved, verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God. A caution in verse 21. Now, comfort in verse 24. Keep yourselves. God's able to keep you. How do they connect? Or do they connect? Maybe they contradict. Maybe Jude is just absent-minded and forgot to pick one. <laughs> Scripture is clear time and time again. With us rests responsibility. With God rests our security. Now, Scripture deliberately doesn't say how they fit together, so neither should we. We should never speak where Scripture is silent. We have a clearly stated responsibility, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13. Hey, Christians, examine yourselves. See whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Test yourselves. And yet we also have Jude here in our passage offering us assurance that God's himself able to keep us from stumbling and present us blameless. I can't explain to you how the two are connected because Scripture doesn't explain to us precisely how they fit together, but it also doesn't describe them as being contradictory, so neither should we. In the words of one theologian, this means we're locked into a measure of mystery, and that really shouldn't surprise us. We're thinking about God. <laughs> if there were nothing mysterious about him at all, I suppose he wouldn't even be God. He'd be somebody too small, too easily tamed, too domesticated. We're always going to bump up against mystery eventually. But there's this really precise and thoughtful way that Scripture talks to us about keeping ourselves and being reassured by the fact that God's keeping us, and so we should handle them with the same care. The full counsel of Scripture tells us that real faith always finishes. It's not how strong your faith is or how much of it you have, but whether it's real. It can be really tiny and really feeble, but if it's there at all, it's enough. It doesn't matter how small or weak or unimpressive it might feel to you when you stop and look in your chest. Confidence in God's preservation of us, of the kind that Jude wants us to grab hold of here in our passage, and careful self-examination aren't contradictory. They're connected for the Christian because in his wisdom, God uses both warnings and promises to produce real vigilance and real comfort in his people, and both of those are ways in which he keeps us. So if you're really a Christian, if you really are hanging on to Jesus as your only access to God here in the room today, then Jude's cautions aren't meant to trigger worry and endless introspection in you. They're meant to reassure you and strengthen your confidence because keeping ourselves is actually one of the ways God keeps us. If you were really self-deceived, you wouldn't be taking God's warnings and scripture to heart in the first place. You'd be blowing them off. 
You may even remember a time that feels far too recent where you were blowing them off. But now if you find in yourself today a longing to be kept by Jesus, you should be encouraged. John Newton, the former slave trader who became a Christian and repented of his ways and eventually wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, wrote these words in a letter to a friend. Listen to what he says. Don't dishonor Christ so as to imagine he will disappoint the desire which no power but his could implant in your heart. Give Jesus a little credit, Newton's saying. You wouldn't have that desire in the first place unless Jesus put it there. You wouldn't be worried about whether or not you're going to finish well unless Jesus made you care about that. And he's kind. He's not cruel. He's not a trickster. He wouldn't give you the desire and then not fulfill the very desire he took the trouble to put in your heart. Jude says he's able to keep you from stumbling. He's able to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. We won't admit to it in a Sunday school context, but there are moments where if we're really honest, we wonder if God is cruel. Ask yourself, what in your life has been taken from you that's tempted you to believe that he's a cruel trickster and not a kind father? What's been taken from you that might tempt you to believe that? Or maybe you need to ask yourself, What's always dangled just out of reach that you can't quite get your hand on that tempts you to believe he's cruel, that he's messing with you? What if you gave Jesus a little more credit? Don't dishonor Christ so as to imagine he'll disappoint the most important desires which no power but his can implant in your heart. If this God that we've come to serve has your trust, if he has your submission, if he has your deepest heart affections, you don't have to be afraid that you're going to fail to finish. Why? Jude says, because you've come to a God who preserves his people. But you also don't have to be afraid that you're going to end up unfulfilled either. We just saw that the whole point of his preservation is to bring us back to his presence. He's preserving us, not because he needs us, but so much better because he wants to be with us. This preservation is for his presence. He doesn't really need you, but oh man, he wants to be with you. So the second reason Jude says we don't have to be afraid there in verse 25 is that God's preserving his people for his presence so that he can be with us so we don't have to worry about feeling unfulfilled when we get there. We're not going to feel unfulfilled when we get there. But how can we be sure? How can we be sure that we won't be bored in heaven? That we'll find fulfillment and satisfaction in God's presence? There's a ton of reasons, but I'm only going to give you two because I'm going to have mercy on you. First, we can find fulfillment in his presence because in God's presence, we're not the center of interest. I don't know if you know this about being human, but one of the best things in the world is when you're no longer the center of interest. We're going to find fulfillment in God's presence because we won't be the center of interest. Think about the fact that Jude's words here in verse 25, they're for us, but they're not about us. 
Jude says every follower of Jesus is going to be eventually, certainly presented before God in all of his glory. And the result is going to be that we're going to experience unimaginable joy. But his closing words are for us without being about us because what Jude's saying is that it's only when God gets the glory and the credit and the fame that he deserves that we're ever going to finally experience the joy that we long for. He's never going to be satisfied and neither are we until he's finally put back at the center where he belongs. And we wake up every morning kicking God out of the center. It's our natural human inclination. We're glory thieves. We were born into this world stealing God's glory. But any time that we've even come close to being successful at that, it's made us miserable. We weren't made for the center. We shrivel and die at the center. Most people in the world who are unhappy are really, if you think about it, unhappy because they haven't figured out that everything's not about them. That being at the center is exhausting because all of us here make perfectly good people, but we make terrible gods. We, we can't truly become ourselves until we find somebody, hope that we can find somebody bigger than us, better than us, who can take us out of this prison of ourselves and permanently hold our awe and our attention and free us from this self-obsession, self admiration, endless introspection. Think about how even the things that bother us most about ourselves are really just another symptom of our obsession with ourselves. If even when we're thinking less of ourselves, part of why it bothers us is that deep down we wish we thought better of ourselves, right? See, glory is like a spotlight that can't be switched off. And everybody here came into the room with a spotlight. You're pointing it somewhere. You've got to point it somewhere. Jude wants us to see that if we don't worship the creator, we'll end up worshiping his creation and we'll just shrivel up and die. Our souls will get really small and sick and starved for beauty and wonder and transcendence. So Jude's not trying to impress people with his literary talents here in the last verse of this letter. He's waxing poetic because he wants us to see that all spotlights should be trained on God. All songs should be sung to God. Every mouth when it opens should reflexively shout praise to God. Every knee should automatically bow to God. To him, Jude says, verse 25, belongs glory and majesty and dominion and authority. Jude's saying, give those things to him because they belong to him. He's always deserve them. Someday soon, he'll always have them. And you're not going to be fulfilled until you figure that out. <laughs> well, the second reason that we're going to be sure to find fulfillment in his presence is because though we're not the center of interest, we are known intimately. We're going to find fulfillment in God's presence, not only because we won't be the center of interest, but also because we're going to be known intimately. Jude writes, now to him, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory. Notice what he just did there. Glory belongs to him, not only because he's the only God, but also, Jude says, verse 25, 
because he's our Savior. What's so profound about this God, Jude's saying, is that he's transcendent without being indifferent. Because he's transcendent, it doesn't mean that he's not also intimate. And when you find a God to worship who has both of those attributes together, and you begin to experience what it's like to be known intimately by a transcendent God, it starts to rearrange all the furniture in your life. You start to find yourself changing right in the midst of your unchanging difficulties. You start to find yourself actually not so much escaping your circumstances as transcending them. And we're all fascinated by people who transcend their circumstances. If we're really honest, the longer we live, the less interested we are in figuring out how to acquire the best that life has to offer. When we were young, we thought that would make us really happy. And then you get older, and you start to realize how fleeting that stuff is. You get older, and you start to realize how spectacularly unable those things are to make you happy. Cars and promotions and custom homes and new equipment and people's recognition in the community. It just doesn't actually do what you always thought it would do if you could just get your hands on it. Now, we're happy for our friends when they're fortunate. Part of being a friend is when you get a new car, you get to call your buddies up and have them all come over and tell you how awesome it is. <laughs> we're all happy for our friends when they're fortunate, but we're fascinated by friends who face suffering and grieve, but not as those, in Paul's words, without hope. We're happy for our friends when things are going well for them, but we're fascinated by our friends who somehow avoid growing bitter in the midst of suffering. How have they managed to transcend their circumstances? What could possibly produce that kind of counterintuitive, uncommon response in people who are facing suffering? Maybe there's something about that person that I don't have. So we start to study them. But we're already looking in the wrong place. The secret doesn't lie in the person. The answer is not in how they've transcended their circumstances, but the answer is who they've encountered right in the midst of their circumstances. Because what you'll probably find as you get closer to those people is that they've been radically changed by somebody so transcendent that he can capture every one of their tears in a bottle and not lose track of a single one while simultaneously, uh, Colossians tells us, upholding the universe with just his words. A God so transcendent that he could enter into our human experience so fully as to be described by Isaiah as a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and yet mysteriously still be existing out of time as the infinite second person of the Godhead and never even coming close to being surprised or perplexed or caught off guard. Has it ever occurred to you that nothing's ever occurred to this God? And when you meet a Christian who's transcending the circumstances of, say, their cancer. It's because of the sheer weight and wonder of this being being described for us by Jude who can effortlessly cradle and spin galaxies with one hand while simultaneously attending to this man in the agony of his cancer as he faces the fear of death and when he experiences the intimacy of this transcendent God, he's undone. 
He's taken outside himself to such a degree that he's just going to lay his head back on his hospital pillow and whisper with Jude, glory. This is our God, Jude's saying. He's transcendent, and yet he's tender. He dwells in unapproachable light, and yet he draws near. The only God, verse 25, is also our Savior. Think about that. If you really believe that, how would that change how you think about him and talk to him? What if you've come not to an indifferent, cold, unfeeling, incompetent, forgetful, absent father? What if you've come to a father who already knows what you need before you even ask him? How would that change how you talk to him? How often you talk to him? Think about this stunning reality that right before Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, because they said, hey, hey, teach us how to pray. We don't know how. And then he taught them what we still recite today, 2,000 years later, the Lord's Prayer. Have you ever noticed what he says right before he teaches them the prayer? Matthew 6, 8. Hey, guys. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. What if you prayed to him in the knowledge of the way in which he's intimately attending to the places of your greatest fear, your greatest shame, your greatest longings, your sources of embarrassment, the places where you feel stuck, what if you really believed he wasn't indifferent to those places inside you? In conclusion, I think the show writers of The Good Place actually got it right. <laughs> I think heaven without God would eventually leave us all disillusioned, longing to lay down the burden of existence, longing to create a door that we can walk through and find some kind of rest. But if we find ourselves fantasizing about that kind of door, drawn to that kind of door, it shows that we don't really comprehend the nature of the God that's being described for us here by Jude. Because there's no possibility of boredom in the presence of this God. You're not going to need a door like that if you're ushered into the presence of his glory, verse 24, with great joy. If you come to a God where you'll be endlessly fascinated by his infinite glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. Because whatever you've managed to find most satisfying, this side of the line, we live in the dot, but this side of the line that stretches on forever, he's better. Being in the presence of God for eternity is sort of like diving into your favorite book or binging your favorite show or eating your favorite meal or thinking about one of your favorite memories, except you'll never actually scrape the bottom. And you'll never get tired because the fascinating thing about being in God's presence is he'll ensure that your capacity for enjoying him will actually always keep pace as your enjoyment of him increases. <laughs> you won't get tired of it. The glory of our great God, Judah's saying, hasn't been revealed yet, but you can catch little glimpses of it in oceans and mountains and prairie skies and birds' cries when the wind's hitting your face spinning galaxies that you spot through a telescope, flowers coming up in the spring, the joy 
of a bride on her wedding day, wine being poured in the glass, a soldier coming back from war, babies being born, anything broken that's ever been mended, and yet, most clearly of all, Jude's saying, in the face of Jesus Christ. And what I think Jude wants to boil it all down to for us is this, hey, we're not home yet, but you can almost taste it. We're not home yet, but you can almost taste it. Jude's really just echoing what he heard from his brother, who Jude also calls in verse 4 his only master and Lord, when Jesus said in John 6, hey, this is the will of my Father who sent me, that I should lose none of all that he's given me, but raise them up on the last day, and that day will be beautiful. Glory, majesty, dominion, authority, before all time and now and forever. Amen. Stand with me as we prepare to take communion. Jesus commanded us to take this meal together as a picture of what he did for us all by himself with no help from us. Something so good that we couldn't earn it and we don't have to have to fear losing it. We don't just come to this meal to remember what he did, but we actually approach this table to experience a fresh measure of his presence. Come to the table today with the expectation that God is going to fill you with more of himself so that you might go out the doors this week and transcend your circumstances by his power and the knowledge that your father is not cold or indifferent, but he loves you. So you can come and you can take the bread, obey your conscience, and taking the juice or the wine. We have gluten-free options there. And then hold those elements, and then in a moment, we'll take them together.